Acts chapter 24. Now, I would assume here this morning, if you claim Christ as Savior, that your desire would be to draw near to him. That you would want to have a fruitful relationship with Christ. I would assume that. If you, if you have repented and placed your faith in Christ, that you want to draw near in him. You want to grow in Christ like this. I also uh, don't assume that everybody here necessarily is a follower of Jesus. Perhaps you are on the fence. You are thinking and praying through, or trying to figure out, like, who is this Jesus? And is Jesus someone I should follow? Perhaps maybe there are even some of you who were dragged here. You did not want to come here. This was not your preference, and you are angry at Jesus. Whatever category you find yourself in, here is the reality. All of us have barriers to Christ. Those who are unbelievers, the barrier is unbelief. There's just a, a refusal or just, just the, the noncommittal attitude of, you know what, I'm not repenting of my sins. I'm not placing my faith in Christ until I understand a little bit more. For believers in Christ, the threat it's not that we would lose our salvation because of these barriers. However, they, these barriers can keep us from a fruitful relationship with Jesus. So this morning, we are going to see, once again, Paul on trial. And there are many players here in the story. And with that, many barriers that we will see that can keep us from a healthy relationship with Christ or keep us from believing in Jesus Christ altogether. So let's jump into the text this morning, Acts chapter 24. I'm going to read it starting in verse 1. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation, in every way and in everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I was up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers." Believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward God, both God and man. Now after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an ac accusation should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias, the, tri the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody. But have, but have some liberty 
and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I'm grateful for the reminder, Lord, that the cup was not removed. That your son drank your wrath. All of it. He did it all for the sake of every person who would ever repent and believe in you. And so God, because of that, those of us who have done that, we have freedom this morning. However, Lord, in our lives, there are times where we place barriers that interrupt our relationship with you, not from an eternal perspective, but from a temporal perspective. And it takes our focus off of you, and it, it makes us bad witnesses, and it, and it trips us up to where we can temporarily lose hope. We can temporarily find ourselves in fear and anxiety and despair. God, would you help us to see those barriers that we are putting in front of ourselves that are interrupting our relationship with you. Also, Lord, they interrupt our relationship with one another. And Father, if there will be any here who have yet to bow their knee to you, God, would you remove those barriers? Perhaps this morning they would see what those are, and Father, that you would remove them by your grace. God, we are desperate for you to move in us, Father. We acknowledge that we plant and water only you can grow, Lord, and so I, I can... I can Preach a perfect message, Lord, but only you can bring growth. And so, Lord, would you move in our hearts this morning that we would be stirred and that you would allow us to see how we can draw near to you and remove any barriers that may be there. So, God, we ask for your blessings in Jesus' name. Amen. So five days earlier from this point, along with, uh, there were plots that were made against Paul by the Jews, if you remember. And what had happened is that Paul's nephew overheard what was going on, and so he went to the uh, tribune, Claudius Lysias, and he said what was going on. And so therefore, because of that, the, the pro, sorry, I'm trying to get my words together here this morning. That's what a men's retreat will do to you, right? Uh, so Claudius wanted to protect Paul, and so in order to get him to Felix, he had 470 men come and protect him and deliver him. Ultimately, we know is because God's will was for Paul to make it to Rome and to make his proclamation there of the truth. And so this is where uh, Paul has been delivered, and this is where 24 picks up. And so as we move our way through this chapter, I want to hit five barriers that we face that put a wedge between us and Christ. Barriers that we are all susceptible to. This isn't, this isn't limited to one kind of person. We are all susceptible to it. Here's the first barrier. The barrier of flattery. The barrier of flattery. Look again at verse 1. We see here that the high priest Ananias came down with the elders of the Jews and a spokesman. They have this lawyer here named Tertullus. And they laid before the governor the, their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him. And this is what he said. Since through you we enjoy much peace. And since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation. In every way and in everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. Can you just like hear the, the uh, flattery coming out of Tertullus? So, so here's who Tertullus was. Tertullus was a Gentile, we believe, and he was a lawyer. Any lawyers in the house today? 
Okay, so I'm free to say some lawyer jokes here. I'm just kidding. I'm not going to do that. Uh, but Tertullus was a schemy guy. I mean, doesn't he sound slimy? He's trying to butter up Felix here. He says this, since through you we enjoy much peace. Actually, the truth is, is that under Felix up to this point in the history, there, there had never been the less peace than what there was at this point. There, the, I mean, Felix was not doing his job. Peace was missing in this, and yet this lawyer is buttering Felix up. He goes on to, and, and also this, the Jews actually hated Felix. Uh, the, he was not a friend of the Jews. He would take bribes. Uh, he, he did not care about the people and the needs that they had. And so to say we enjoy much peace was an absolute lie. And, and notice the, the over-exaggeration of words. It says reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere. We accept this with gratitude. And I can imagine like Felix rolling his eyes here like, bro, we both know what's going on here. We both know what has happened to me. And so he he finally wraps things up. But hey, don't, don't, but listen, I, I don't want to waste your time. I beg of your kindness to hear us briefly. Th- doesn't that sound like flattery? Sound like somebody who is just trying to get his way, trying to get to the point where Felix is willing to hear his side of the story and, and, and go with him. Now notice how Paul responds so much differently. Look at what he says in verse 10. When the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. So, like, here's his, like, flattery. Hey, you've been a judge a long time. <laughs> like, he's not looking to butter him up. He's just like, yep, you've been here a long time. So at this point, it's been five-plus years that Felix has been here. But, but he is not looking to suck up at all. This is quite different than the way the Jews and their lawyer were sucking up to people. Flattery can be a very dangerous thing. Here's, a, uh, here's what the Oxford definition of flattery is, and I think it's, I think it's good. It's ex- excessive and insincere praise given especially to further one's own interests. Flattery is not complimenting. We understand that, right? Complimenting is like you appreciate something of someone, and so you share that. You're not looking to get anything in return. You're just looking to compliment someone. Flattery is you are excessively being over-exuberant about somebody in order to earn something back. Like you are looking to get something back. That is what flattery is. The lawyer wanted to smooth talk his way to persuading Felix to do what he wanted. His concern was not at all for the truth. He didn't want the truth to be proclaimed. He wasn't looking to say, hey, if Paul's innocent, then let's be innocent. But if he's guilty, then let's move forward. No. It was, in his mind, Paul was guilty, and so let's, let's be done with him. No concern for the truth. He just wanted Paul out of the picture. Now, I, I'm grateful for lawyers, for good lawyers, those who are standing up and fighting for the truth. But have you ever watched a trial or heard the details of a trial that you know the defendant is 100% guilty, and you are listening to the story. I mean, there's just, there's just even no room for, for this not to be true. It's absolutely true. And yet the lawyer on the defendant's side is looking for a loophole to get his defendant off. Have you, ever, have you ever acknowledged that? Does that not make you angry like I do? Like if somebody is guilty, can we just move on? And yet... People are dragged through these trials, and lawyers are, some lawyers are participating in that. It's despicable. And yet that's what Tertullus is doing here. He just wants to win and doesn't care about the defendant at all. You know, here's the thing about flattery. Flattery has no desire for the truth. Those who use it just want to get their way. And so let's just think about this. What does flattery look like in the church? Here's one way I think about it. One, one major way I see it appear is in the fear of man. The fear of man is when we care far more about what people think of us than we do about what God thinks of us. And so we're going to say whatever we can to those around us to get them to like us, 
well, we don't want to ruffle any feathers. We want to keep the peace. And so that means that, that sounds good. Like, how many of you want to keep the peace amongst one another? That, that, that's not necessarily bad. But if it comes at the expense of confronting a brother and sister in Christ who is in sin and we refuse to do that, in essence, that's a form of flattery. There are times in my life, I, I, have, I, I hate at times when people call me out, except when it's true. <laughs> and I see God using people in my life to call me out for sins that I am guilty of so that my blinders are taken off. God can bring conviction and then bring change in my life. But if we have no concern for the truth, then when somebody confronts us, we're going to be defensive. Or if somebody in our lives needs to be confronted in a loving way, we refuse to do it because we don't want that person to think ill of us. Flattery can be dangerous in the church. It can be dangerous with those around us. It can be dangerous for us. And if we are just looking to use excessive praise in order to win something, it's going to hinder our relationship with Christ. Beware of the barrier of flattery. Look at verse 5. For we have found this man a plague, that's Paul, of course, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. Here's barrier number two. Having a horizontal focus. Having a horizontal focus. So here we see the lawyer bringing three charges against Paul. Notice there. Number one, that Paul stirred up rioters. Number two, he was a ringleader of the Christians they were persecuting. Number three, he profaned the temple. And notice that in this, the Jews, they were all giving their approval to what Tertullus said. Isn't that something? Don't, doesn't a crowd love negativity? Don't, doesn't, doesn't, like you look at America, what sells? Doesn't negativity sell? The sad part was that the Jews didn't care at all about Jesus. Or about God. Their, their eyes weren't on the Father. They, were looking, they weren't looking vertical to see how they could honor him. Their eyes were on Paul. And so because they had these man-made rules that they had made, and Paul wasn't allowing them to get away with it, their eyes were not on, okay, if Paul's right here, what do we need to do to get right with God? No, and rather they were looking to eliminate the one who was calling them out for their sin. Their focus was completely horizontal. They were consumed with Paul. Their gaze was on him and their bloodthirsty desire for him to suffer. But that was not Paul's focus at all. Look at verse 10. When the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem Worship in Jerusalem. So what is Paul saying here in these? He, he, he's confronting the first charge that was brought against Paul. How could I possibly have had enough time in 12 days to stir up rioters? That is not enough time to come and try to get some people riled up and be willing to cause a big ruckus. It's going to take more time than that to gain followers. Paul, it's been years since Paul's been back here. Paul's saying, that's impossible. That would have taken way longer than 12 days to do that. Look at verse 12. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. So here he's defending the third charge about profaning the temple. Now, if you remember, they saw a certain Jew or a certain, certain Gentile in the temple. And we, what we talked about then is that it was unlawful and unclean for a Gentile to be in the temple. It would have been written all over the walls. And so this was, this was something that was not allowed. 
And, and so that's why they said that Paul profaned, because they saw Paul hanging out with that Gentile outside of the temple in the city. And so they just assumed, uh, actually, they just wanted Paul to get in trouble, right? And so they just declared Paul guilty. Hey, we saw you with somebody out there. And so therefore, because you were with him out there, you brought him in here. That was you. They didn't see him bring him in. They have no proof of it. But yet that's what they're charging him of. And, and Paul's like, that there's no truth to that. You didn't see me coming in. You just saw me with him outside of there. And plus, it talks about the fact that he was purified. If you remember that he went through a week of purification. So why would Paul take the, the hassle that he didn't need to do in the eyes of God, but he did it for the sake of the Jews? Why would he go through purification for a week only to enter the temple and defame the temple by bringing a Gentile in? But that's how, that's how people work when they have a vendetta against somebody. Look at verse 14. So he's, he's two out of the three. He says there's just no basis of truth here. And he says this in verse 14. But this I confess to you that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Do you see the vertical focus that Paul has? His, his, his desire is to please the Lord. He's not trying to compare his life to other people. He's strictly looking at the, at the scriptures, at the law, and he's, he wants to glorify the Lord. He, he wants to please him, he wants to have a clear conscience because he believes, notice it says, in the resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Do you realize that we're all going to face resurrection to a certain degree? Some of us will go into glory forever, and the rest will be cast into hell for an eternity. And so because of that, Paul wants to have a clear conscience. That's why his focus is on God. God, I just want to honor you. His focus was not horizontal. It was vertical. And the Jews, however, were focusing on things horizontally. And here's the truth. If we have a horizontal focus, here's what's going to happen. One of two things. Number one, you might just look around and see how much better everybody is than you. And that can lead to great despair. That's what happens to people. They compare their lives, they see what somebody else has, they see what they've been able to accomplish, maybe you're limited, um, you're limited just from a knowledge perspective, and you can be very discouraged. Maybe you don't have the mobility that somebody else has, and you look at somebody else who, who is able to function at a high level, and you're just, you can find yourself jealous because your, your focus is horizontal. The other side of that is that you look around and you're like, certainly doing better than that guy over there. Or that mom certainly isn't as good as mom. And my kids would never do that in public. And we can build ourselves and pump ourselves up full with pride because we just have a horizontal focus. We're, we become more like the Pharisee in Jesus' parable about the Pharisee and the tax collector than we do about Christ. Let me just invite you, keep your finger here, turn back into Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. Let's just read about that story real quick about the, the parable that Jesus shared about the Pharisee and the, the tax collector. Luke 18, starting in verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. That's what a Pharisee is. That's what these Jews were as well in Acts 24. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Here's the reality. 
if our focus is always horizontal, looking at other people, we will always be able to find a reason to think that we're pretty righteous. Because there will always be somebody who is doing something worse than us. And that's what Christians like to do. They like to look at some categories of their life and think, man, look, I got this together. And look at that person over there. Look at my kids behaving so nicely. You know, I used to be that parent. That was the parent I was before I had kids. <laughs> you, know, you know, when you were a perfect parent before you had kids and you thought, my kid is never going to do that. And uh, I have one daughter in here today. I'm going to embarrass her a little bit this morning. You know, terrible twos is not a thing. I don't believe in the terrible twos. Threes, though, that's a, that's a whole new animal. And I remember, I think it was the day she turned three. Uh, Reese goes into, the, they go into the store and she wanted something and Nikki said no and she went bananas. <laughs> Look at that. So it is so easy for us to compare to other people and feel good about ourselves. And whenever we do that, that's when we're going to find ourselves feeling pretty good about ourselves. But the tax collector here in Luke that we just read about, if, you, if he was comparing himself to God and all of us, when we have the standard of Jesus Christ, the only thing we can do is fall to our knees. Because uh, imagine Jesus was born as we were, and yet for 30 plus years that he walked on this earth, he never messed up a single time. Can you believe that? Never did he get wrongfully irritated. Never did he lose his temper. He didn't look at women inappropriately. He was perfect in every way. When you compare yourself to him, you can't help but fall to your knees. But here's the hope of believers. Jesus didn't come to say, hey, I can do it. Why can't you? He came and said, I did this because you can't. And I did this for you so that you would rest in my righteousness, not your own and so, therefore, as believers in Christ, to boast in our, in our actions and what we do is ridiculous. Because our sin cost a perfect man his life. Jesus hung on the cross not just because he was doing something his father did. He hung on the cross because he had to, to pay for the sins of every person who would ever believe. Brothers and sisters, when our focus is continually on Jesus Christ, we don't have time to look around and compare our lives to others. We just want to be conformed to the image of Christ so that we can glorify him, so that others might see our good works, so that we can say, man, this is nothing that I could do. This is what Jesus has done through me. And I'm still a wreck, but God's making me more and more like his son. Having a horizontal focus is so dangerous for us. But listen, isn't it so much easier to look at others than it is to look to the perfection of Jesus? Don't compare yourself to others. That will only lead you down a dark path. Look to Jesus Christ. Here's barrier number three. What will hinder our relationship with Christ? Participating in gossip will. Participating in Gossip. Look at verse, the second part of verse 18. Some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation. Should they have anything against me? Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. So, again, we see glimpses of him going after the second charge about the fact that he was, like, leading these Nazarenes. Well, there was some truth in that. He was leading the way. He was leading the Christians. But, but here's what he's saying here. He's like, look, these brothers who came today to accuse me, they're not the ones who accused me before. Where are they at? So you're going to go through the word of somebody else rather than ask me. Nobody ever came to me to try to affirm, hey, did you bring this guy into the temple? Isn't that what gossip is? We hear one story and we just run with it because, you know, if it fits our narrative, if, we fits, if, if what we hear fits what we want to hear, isn't it, don't we often just run with it? And we neglect to run to, to the source to find out. Nobody came to Paul and said, hey, Paul, we need to understand, did you bring a Gentile in here? No, they're just looking for a way to accuse him. And so, oh, I saw him out there with somebody, so it had to be him that brought him in the temple. 
If you were to ask me to make a list of the top five reasons for church splits, no doubt gossip would be high up on that list. Sadly, our human nature is more about tearing down rather than lifting up. We would much rather talk badly about people than to lean in and get to know someone and find out the truth. And maybe even have some compassion on those who are doing bad things because it's all they know. Meanwhile, we haven't said a single prayer for them. We haven't sought the truth. We haven't looked to confirm, hey, I'm hearing these things. Is this true? When the negativity fits our narrative of somebody, we just run with it. I mean, just consider the news. You ever turn on the news and just like celebrate for 30 minutes while you're watching it? Oh, praise the Lord. This is good. Oh, another good story. Oh, look, look, another positive story about what people are doing in the world. Is that what the news has? Here's the crazy thing, too, about social media that I've observed. You put a scripture up. You put something encouraging up. You get like three likes. You put something negative, ripping apart somebody that everybody else doesn't like. You get five million replies. Without fail, that's, that's what I've seen all throughout. It's because gossip sells. In Hollywood, do you hear of stories about good things that any people in Hollywood are doing? No, it's gossip columns. They literally labeled that. Like, here's the Hollywood gossip column. Let's talk bad about, let, let, let's, let's just look at the, the wealthy, let's look at the actors, and let's just rip them apart because you know what, it's fun because that fits our narrative. Instead of like, God, if these are things are true, would you break their heart for you? God, help me to examine my own heart to see, are these things true of me in some form or fashion? But gossip leaves a, see, gossip is about looking horizontal, isn't it? It's about, like, it, it makes ourselves feel better to, like, put down somebody else. So instead of looking to Jesus, instead of desiring someone to be saved, we'd rather rip them apart. I mean, did, did Paul not have every opportunity to rip the Jews apart? And yet he, I read, I think last week, about the fact that he would have wished to become an unbeliever so that his brothers may come to Christ. He loved them. His heart was not to rip them apart. His heart was for them to come to Jesus because his focus was vertical. He cared more about the worship of Jesus Christ than he did about anything else. So let me ask you this. Are you quick to believe every negative story that comes out about somebody in which the outcome falls where you would want it to fall? Or do you hold out judgment until you find all the facts? This is what Proverbs 18, 17 says. The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. There are things that I've heard and I'm like, this is absolutely true. And I, and I haven't always ran quickly to hold, hold reservations for whether or not things are true. Like the media, you know, the media can spin whatever story it wants to and have you believing whatever they want you to believe. And if we're not careful, we may run to that and believe it before we go to the facts. The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines them. And this is what I see in the church. Somebody is offended by somebody. And so then they go tell somebody else, and oh, yeah, yeah, I affirm that too. I've seen the same thing in him when they have no clue about the situation. And so instead of going to the source of the, what they think the problem is, they go to somebody else to try to get approval of what they think is true. And if they get approval of somebody else who, who is in their corner, then all of a sudden it's true because you have two who, who believe the same thing even though nobody went to the source. How about this? How about instead of gossiping, we put a stop to it, and instead we run to the source and say, look, I don't know if these things are true. I just need to know and understand what's going on. Everything good here? Is there any reality to this? And if there is truth, let's look at Matthew 18. Matthew 18 says, go to your brother. Confront them. Don't go to another person who's not involved. Go to the brother who, can, who wronged you and talk to them about it. If it doesn't get worked out, bring a witness and come to them. And then, after you've done everything you could do to try to restore the brother, then you kick them out of the church. Then you practice church discipline in order that they may be won over. But here's how often human nature works. Somebody wrongs us, and we have one thing in mind. 
excommunication. Let's get them out of here. They screwed up. They're out. Is that how Jesus treats us? You look at Matthew 18. Matthew 18 is not about disciplining somebody. The goal of Matthew 18 is not let's discipline somebody out of the church. But yet that's how we often treat it. The goal of Matthew 18, if we want to bring that up, the goal is restoration. How about instead of gossiping, we go and we work things out, and if we have legitimately been wronged, we forgive as Christ has forgiven us. Here's the thing. You've heard me say this before, and you'll probably hear me say it a million times more. Our sins against Christ are far worse than than anyone's sins against us. And yet, what did Jesus Christ do for us? Died on the cross, made us right, and forgives us over and over and over again. Remember when, was it Peter that went to Jesus and said, how many times we should forgive? Perhaps seven? Like he thinks that's a righteous, righteous request. And then what did Jesus say to him? Huh, 77 times. 70 times seven. Really what Jesus was saying is like, don't count. Just forgive. If they repent, Forgive. Gossip will destroy a church very quickly. Here's barrier number four. Refusal to repent of sin. Refusal to repent of sin. Look at verse 22. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some time, after some days, Felix came, down, came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. So here we meet a new person. This is Felix's wife, Drusilla. So here's what you need to know about her. She was married previously, and Felix corruptly brought on her to get her, for her to get a divorce from her husband. And then he married her. Felix was not a good guy. And yet we see him here intrigued. He was intrigued by the truth. He was intrigued by this Paul who was like creating quite quite the stir, and yeah, I, I think Felix, Felix was understanding that Paul was innocent. Otherwise, he would not have given him the freedom. Notice the freedom in verse 23. Uh, he kept him in custody, but have, like, have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. So he was allowing people to come attend Paul to his needs. He wasn't treating him like a criminal. That makes me believe Felix believed he was innocent, but to please the Jews, he kept them in, in chain. He kept them like, guarded somewhat, at least. So he's intrigued. He's a bad dude, but he's intrigued about God. He, he wants to know more about him. And so Paul shares this message. And notice what he taught him in verses 24 and 25. He spoke about faith in Christ, righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. So let me ask you this. Was it righteous for Felix to cause the divorce of Drusilla? No, it was not. Did it show self-control to have to marry another man's wife? Again, no. And certainly, without repentance of sin, he would be facing the coming judgment without Christ on his side. So Paul just basically nailed Felix to the ground and said, you're guilty. And how did Felix respond? He said, I need you to go. He was troubled. He was alarmed. He was aware that he was being called out. He refused to repent of his sins. He loved his sin too much. He wasn't willing to confront it. And and plus, I think for him, there would have been so much for him to lose if he would repent of his sins and come to Christ. And so instead of repenting, he rejected the gospel. You see, this is what happens a lot with some who claim to be Christians and unbelievers. They look at Jesus 
and they're looking for another tool in their toolbox. They're looking for another toy that would bring them a little bit of pleasure. And so they'll add it to the collection, but they're not willing to submit everything to him. Like, yeah, Jesus sounds great for a little bit. I'll take, I'll take the Savior part, but I'm going to leave the Lord out. Jesus didn't come to have half our hearts, right? Jesus didn't say, hey, anyone who come after me, let him deny himself half the time. Follow me some of the days. But Jesus said, deny yourself daily. Pick up your cross daily. Follow me daily. And Here's the thing with believers. This is, this, Felix was an unbeliever, at least at this point. I don't know what happened to him. For believers, there are certain times where believers are in, caught in sin. They're, they're struggling with sin. It's a habitual sin. And they refuse to bring it to the light because they care too much about what other people think of them. And so they refuse to repent of their sin. If we have unrepentant sin in our life that we know of, that we are, we are pursuing with passion... Does that hinder our relationship with Jesus Christ? Absolutely it does. So the question for you this morning, is there unrepentant sin in your life? Are you saying yes to Jesus in all these areas, but not this one? This one's from me. You can have most of my heart, Jesus, but this part over here, I, I can't give up porn. I, I can't give up my eating issues. I, I, can't, I can't give up my laziness. I can't give up my entertainment of watching TV four hours a day or whatever that keeps me from going to Christ. If we refuse to repent of sin, it will hinder our relationship with Christ. And I encourage you this morning, if, the, if, God, is, if God is convicting you this morning of sin, don't leave here before finding someone who you can confess to. Aaron's here. I'll be available. Find Zach. If there's, if there's a brother or sister in Christ whom you deeply respect spiritually who could help restore you, find somebody, repent of your sin. This is what God's word says in James. If we uh, confess your sins to one another, that you may be healed. What a gift from God's word. You want to be healed from that sinful struggle? One, one opportunity you have is to confess it and forget about what people may think of you. Think about what Jesus thinks of you. If you repent, if we confess our sin, 1 John 1, 9, he is faithful and just to forgive. People don't always forgive because we're sinful and we're human. But Jesus forgives and we need to find our identity in what God thinks of us, not what people think. Beware of refusing to repent of your sin. Here's the last barrier. The love of money. The love of money. Look at verse 26. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. So remember, one reason why Paul wanted to go back to Jerusalem is because he had gathered offerings. And he was, wanted to give it to the churches who were in need. And so I imagine maybe Felix heard of it, and he was impressed with his ability to, to collect money. And so he's thinking, man, I can make something out of this. And so he keeps bringing Paul back. Like, that's why he keeps him in custody. I, this is why I think I, he, he thinks he's, he's innocent. But he's like, maybe I can get something. Maybe I can get a profit off of him. And so he keeps bringing him back. And yet time after time after time, Paul refuses to do that. Who knows? I mean, if Paul would have given him the money, perhaps he would have been set free. But Paul was a man of integrity. Paul loved Jesus. He didn't love money. God can only do for you, money can't do for you what God can do in you. First Timothy 6.10 says this, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. That is a serious warning here. Notice it doesn't say 
Money is the root of all kinds of evil. It says the love of money. So what's the difference? The love of money is when it is everything to you. It is all-consuming. Your life revolves around thinking about money. And love of money is not about being wealthy and rich. The love of money is for all people. You can love money and be the poorest person on the earth. If you are absolutely overly consumed with money, doing everything you can to make money, or your focus is completely on I don't have enough, just as Zach mentioned, you're not content in the Lord. But if we love money, then we make money live for us. I mean, no, this, this, that 1 Timothy 6.10. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. Love of money is going to produce a lot of hardships for you. Our, our economy right now is not great. Do you find yourself obsessed every day looking to see what's in your bank account? Looking at your retirement? How much did it drop today? How am I going to retire? How am I going to do what I want to do? How are we going to go move to Florida if that's what we want to do? That's, that's love of money. Being overly obsessed where all you think about is money. Where it's like yours. You get an extra check and immediately what you think about is like, how can we spend this for us? What new toy do we want? What can we do to our house instead of, how can we use this for the kingdom? Lord, what would you have us do with this? Isn't every good and perfect gift come from the Father above? Isn't the money that we have a gift from God? Do you find yourself happy or depressed based on the amount of money in your bank account, your retirement? If you find yourself saying something like, if God is, if, if, you, if you think this, if God is only good when you have financial security or you question his goodness when things are tight, you might have the love of money. Here's, here's the reality. This is why some people come to Jesus, because they want him to prosper them. They want to be prosperous, healthy. And I came across this quote recently from Ed Welch that I had originally seen before, and, it's, and, it, and, and just listen to this. We trust in God not because he delivers us from every fearful situation, but because he alone is king. God might bring deliverance that saves you from present difficulty, but he might not. You don't trust in deliverance, you trust in God. The same can be said about money. We don't, you know, we don't look for money to bring us security, we have security in Christ. We don't look for money to make us happy, we find joy in Jesus alone. But if we love money like Felix did, then we're going to find ourselves trying to manipulate. It was, it was a crime. It was a Roman crime to bribe others. And yet, Felix, his tenure was known for being one of bribe rather than benevolence. Do you have a hold of money or does money have a hold of you? Brothers and sisters, there are barriers that keep unbelievers from repenting and coming to Jesus. And there are barriers that keep us from having healthy relationships with Jesus. Do you find any of these barriers in your life? Do you find yourself looking to please others and flatter others? Do you look for opportunities to judge yourself based on somebody else? You have a horizontal focus. Are you allowing gossip to come in or, or do you squash it as soon as it comes your way because you know that you need to find the truth before you start participating in something that may not be true? Are there certain sins in your life that you're refusing to repent of because you love it too much? Do you love money? Does it have a grasp on you? All of these things can prevent us from having a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. Let me leave you with these action steps. As you walk out today, I encourage you, first of all, memorize Proverbs 4.23. Memorize Proverbs 4.23. Let me read that for you real quick. It says the following. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. This is a heart issue. These are heart issues. Guard it. The springs of life flow from it. 
I encourage you, spend some time reading Ephesians 6. It just talks about spiritual warfare. It talks about putting on the armor. It's just about being aware. It's just about being vigilant. It's about keeping your hearts. And then I encourage you to evaluate whether or not there are certain barriers in your life that you need to tear down. Take some time. Ask people who know you, hey, do you see any barriers in me? Are there anything, any warnings that you would give me in light of this? Humble yourself. And then ask for prayer. If God reveals something to you, don't walk it alone. We are such a closed-off people sometimes. Mark's here. Aaron's here. I'm here. If you need prayer afterwards, come pray. Like some people tell me this all the time, and believe me, I deeply appreciate this. You're like, I'm sure you're busy. I don't want to bother you. Can we just understand that God has called Mark, Aaron, and I to be shepherds? That doesn't mean I'm just called to preach the word. I'm called to care for you. We are here because we want to care for you. Mark and Aaron aren't here because they love authority. They're here because they love you. They're here because they love Jesus. And so don't be afraid to reach out. Humble yourself. And if you're an absolute wreck, you're not going to get better by staying quiet. Ask for prayer. Well, let me pray and let me invite you to stand. We're going to close in a quick song here too. Let me pray for us though as we head into that. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see any barriers that we may be putting up that are hindering our relationship with you. Father, for those of us who have truly repented of our sin and placed our faith, Lord, you are going to keep us persevering to the end. But yet, Lord, if there are things that are hindering us now, would you reveal that? Would you bring deep conviction? If there are hard hearts even now, Lord, before they walk out, would you break down those walls? Lord, if there be anybody here who is unrepentant of their sin and has never come to you, but they're beginning to see their need, would you humble themselves? Would you humble them? Would you call them? Would you bring them from darkness to light? Would you be with anybody here, Lord, who who just needs someone to, to pray for them, Lord? Give them the courage and the humility to reach out, God. The, the, the truth is we're all a mess. In one form or fashion, nobody here is nailing it in every area of our lives. And so, God, let us care deeply for one another. Father, keep us from putting these barriers up that get in the way of you. And, Lord, I thank you that when you bring conviction, Lord, that is a gift. Your loving kindness brings us to repentance. Father, you are worthy of praise. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.